Now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 6 as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew's gospel. Here are the words of your Savior. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of our Savior Jesus. We thank you for his instruction. We pray that you would open up our ears, that you would soften our hearts to receive these words that we would apply them rightly, that we would obey them. Father, deliver us from distraction, deliver us from the cares of this world, deliver us from all error as we listen to what your spirit has to say to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Did you hear about the woman who purchased a ancient Roman marble sculpture at Goodwill for $35? In 2018, Laura Young bought a 2,000-year-old bust of an unknown Roman aristocrat in an Austin, Texas thrift store, and she displayed the 52-pound marble relic in her home for a few years until she suspected that it may have been worth more than $35. And so she contacted an auction house, which confirmed that indeed this was an original ancient work of art. They traced it back to the collection of King Ludwig of Bavaria in the 1800s, uh, Ludwig's estate had gone to shambles through World War II. A lot of pieces had, had gone missing during the war. So she returned it to a Bavarian Arts Council in Germany, and she was paid a finder's fee for her trouble. Now, we don't know who that Roman aristocrat was, but whoever he was, whose image was immortalized in marble, he could have never imagined that his marble portrait would end up in a Goodwill in Austin, Texas. There's no way he could have known that would have happened. Nor could King Ludwig of Bavaria dreamed of what would happen to his collection. Though it is an undeniable truth that no matter what you own, no matter what it's worth, one day everything that you possess on earth is going to end up in somebody else's hands. It's going to be outside of your control and you will not have a say in what happens to it. One day, when you pass from this life, all the clothes hanging in your closet are either going to be thrown away or donated, and somebody else is going to be wearing your favorite jacket or your favorite suit. Someone else is going to drive your car. Your furniture is going to be distributed to other people. Your house is going to be sold, and other people are going to live in your house. Your banking accounts, your investment accounts are all going to be closed, and all that money is going to be distributed to other people. Your stash of memorabilia, your Fantastic Four comic books and your baseball cards and your signed baseballs and signed footballs, things that have sentimental value, things that mean something to you. It's all going to get thrown away. 
or it's going to get donated, or if they actually have any monetary value, it's going to be sold on eBay or to a collector, but it's not going to be yours. Pictures and old movies of you may be saved for a while, but one day, a great-grandnephew is going to find a shoebox of photos, and he's not going to know who any of these people are. And he maybe keep a couple of interesting ones. You'll end up on the wall of a Cracker Barrel or something. But <laughs> the rest are going to get thrown away. Maybe, just maybe, something you own will end up in a thrift store 2,000 years from now. But that's highly unlikely. I don't know about you, but nothing I own is that durable. Ultimately, all material things get eaten by rust and moth. Even while we're alive, even when we get to enjoy the things and use our possessions, we're constantly reminded of how ephemeral it all is. It's all passing away. It's always breaking. It's always failing. It's losing value. Everything is exposed to theft or ruin. It just wears out or it passes out of fashion. Nobody ever uses that technology anymore. I have a, I have a drawer full of iPods. Does anybody need an iPod? We got a bunch of them for some reason. I have ties that are older than my children, and they're all either too wide or too narrow, and I'm not ever sure which one is in fashion. They lose and pass out of fashion. Some things just lose your interest. You buy things that you think you're going to get a lot of use out of, exercise machines, musical instruments, sports equipment, and one day you just put it down and you don't ever pick it back up again, and it just sits in the corner of your bedroom staring at you, reminding you of your waste of money. I just saw some wives look at some husbands. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what that's about. If y'all need counseling, I'm here on Tuesdays. Um, we've all experienced, though, the frustration of managing stuff, of managing money, of managing possessions and property when the vessels that we put these things into are always leaking. We're always losing the value of these things, whether we're losing it to inflation or depreciation or to theft or to decay or just to the second law of thermodynamics. All things lose their value. Coming to grips with this reality provokes one of two responses. The first response to this reality is anxiety. We want to be able to manage everything. We want to eliminate all the variables. We want to protect what we have and for it to only grow and flourish, but we cannot control everything. The realization that our control is exceedingly limited brings anxiety. If you know that you can't manage everything and you still try to manage everything, you are going to drive yourself mad. Panic is the first response to this reality. The other possible response to this reality is to stop putting your treasures in leaky buckets or stop desiring the things that decay. Stop setting your heart and mind on things that pass away. Acknowledge the futility of that work and stop investing your passions and your time into things that are passing and which are especially prone to the effects of time and worldly economics. Stop focusing your mind and your heart and all the resources of your strength on pursuits which don't have any lasting value at all. Rather, make your investments into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is not a leaky bucket. Jesus says it this way. I just read it a minute ago, a minute ago but hear it again. Matthew 
uh, 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right away, we need to clarify what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about treasures. He's, he's talking about things that you value, things you store up, things you preserve, the kinds of things you lock in a safe. He's not talking about working for food or working for clothing or working for shelter or the other necessities of life. God has prescribed, he's built the world in such a way that work is the way that we provide for ourselves. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about these necessities of life. In fact, he's going to address those at the end of this section, uh, but he's not saying it's nonsense to work for your provision. What he is talking about in this first part is our treasures, our wealth, what are we invested in? Now, when we read this first part about the rust and the decay and the thieves, we know and we understand the fragility of those treasures on earth, just as I described. But what about, what is this about treasures in heaven and how do you store those up? What is Jesus saying? Is he saying, if you would just stop saving and if you would stop investing and instead spend your time only on spiritual things, that what you're actually doing is putting your money in a heavenly bank account. Is that, is that what he's saying? That, that, that is, he, is he encouraging us to retire from all worldly pursuits? And actually, if it would be best if you can work it out to become a monk or a nun, so that when you die, there is going to be a big heavenly bag of gold waiting for you that, that's actually been accumulating interest. Is that what he is saying? I think that's how I've maybe read it or thought about it in the past, but when you start to peel that away, you say, no, that's not really the point. What in the world would you do with a big bag of gold in eternity anyway? I think if we get any crowns, we're going to cast them at the feet of Jesus. I don't, I, those, those treasures don't seem to be line up with the glory or the delights of eternity. Though we, we're not building out a theology of eternal reward here. What is Jesus saying? Uh, Jesus is not calling us to be disinterested in or disinvested from life in this world. That we should just leave everything to the weeds and to destruction while we keep our head in the clouds. Jesus is not saying, don't worry about this life, just start getting ready for the next one. Rather, he is giving us spiritual perspective on earthly wealth. He's warning us against being consumed by things that are vulnerable and passing away. And he's calling us to adopt a heavenly outlook on our work and our affections and our desires. And that's, he, he, he drives to that with that last phrase, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So if you are invested in mind and body and spirit, if you are invested in the world of unbelief, if you're invested in the world that stands in opposition to Christ and invested in all of its systems and all of its institutions, that's where your hopes and dreams will lie. That's what you hope will succeed. That's what you hope will last. And you'll be sorely disappointed when it doesn't. If you are invested in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, that is where your heart and mind will be focused. 
Throughout this whole section, this middle section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been telling us how to lay up heavenly treasures, how to bring in and build up the kingdom of heaven. He said, give your gifts in secret, not for the praise of men. Every time you give your gifts in secret, you're building up the kingdom of heaven. He says, pray in private. He says, when you fast, keep it to yourself. And your father who is in secret and sees in secret will reward you openly. So what Jesus has said so far is if you do things for the passing, fickle praise of men, you are laying up treasures on earth. If you're seeking to please your father in heaven only and always, you're laying up treasures in heaven. You are investing in, in heaven's work, in heaven's program. Okay, well, well what does that mean? What, 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 what is that? What is that treasure? What is that reward? What is that inheritance? Well, Jesus just taught us to pray. In that prayer, he taught us to ask that the Father's kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so God is willing and ready to answer that prayer in such a way that heaven's program, heaven's mission, heaven's priorities are gradually but continually and progressively brought down to earth. That's the trajectory of history, that heaven is coming to earth, that his kingdom is growing on earth. So then work that builds up that kingdom, that presses the advance of that kingdom, Work that establishes the reign of King Jesus, work that follows the patterns and priorities of heaven is work that is eternally significant. That work is rewarded with decay-proof treasures. And here's the encouraging news, is that you don't have to become a monk or a nun to do work that has eternal relevance and glory. We're not, we're not Gnostics. We don't hate creation. We don't hate the created order. We don't despise um, the, the, the incarnate world around us. What we are opposed to is the world's systems, its institutions, which are, which are set in opposition to Christ. And the work of the kingdom is moving the, the, the boundaries of the reign of Christ, pushing against those, those terminal institutions and replacing it with the everlasting, the eternal kingdom. So what that means is your work in the world, the work that you are doing right now is kingdom building work. You don't have to quit your job. You don't have to sign up for the mission field in the Congo unless you're called to, to think that you're doing kingdom work only if you're on the mission field is not uh, what, what Jesus is teaching here, your work right now is kingdom building work. If you do it to the praise of the Lord, your work is your primary means of serving your neighbor. I mean, the Lord Jesus called us to, to love and serve our neighbor. Your work in the world is the way that God has you right now loving the people that God calls you to love. Your neighbor who you are called to love is your customer. Your neighbor is your client, is your coworker. You love your neighbor and you're doing kingdom building work by bagging your neighbor's groceries, by serving his dinner, by writing his software, by teaching his children, by repairing his car, by wiring his house. For moms and, and, and moms of little children, especially 
Who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor right now? The one that you are called to serve at this stage of life, your neighbor that you're called to love is, is about a foot and a half tall and has peanut butter on their face. That's your neighbor. That's the one God is calling you to love and serve right now. Whatever you're calling, what you do at work is kingdom work if you do it well as unto the Lord and not for the praise of men. Your work Monday through Friday builds on the foundation of faithful Christians who have come before you and your work is the platform for your children to build on that. And your children's children, your children's children will build on your life and faithfulness as you're creating these institutions of faithfulness and obedience and setting the Lord Jesus Christ as the center of all things. You are building up his kingdom as you work honestly as you work with good cheer and vigor, you are shining the light of the kingdom. You aren't working for the weekend. You aren't working simply to have the biggest boat on your street. Your work, your work as you do it well, calls men to know and love and serve and trust your king and your savior. Now, if you get good things on the way, if you get cars and vacations and nice clothes and maybe even a boat, that's great, that's wonderful. You give thanks to God for those things. But you hold all those things lightly because you know that they're passing away. Remember what Paul wrote in um, Colossians. And by the way, he wrote this to slaves who might have assumed that their work was particularly meaningless. A slave might have assumed that my work is non-essential for the kingdom. My work does nothing to build up the kingdom of Christ. I'm just serving this master who tells me what to do. And Paul says that's not it at all. That's not the truth. Paul says this. He says, bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers. That's, that's what Jesus has been talking about. The whole middle section of the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is doing things for the pleasure and approval of men. And Paul repeats that to servants. And he says, no, don't do this as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the reward? What is that reward that he's talking about? Well, the reward is Christ himself. The reward is all of his benefits. The reward is the full satisfaction of living a life that is pleasing to God. The reward is that I can rest in that, that my work has relevance because I'm doing what he has given me to do right now. And I'm doing it faithfully. The reward is knowing that my life contributes to that great multi-generational kingdom project of the increase of Christ's reign on earth. And that lasts, that accumulates glory from the work of every Christian in every age. And I get to contribute to that. My blessing is that I get to be a part of that. Now that's only a reward if you can pray the Lord's prayer in sincerity. If you want above all things for your father's name to be hallowed in the earth, if that is your number one priority, and with that, you want more than anything for his kingdom to come, and if you want more than anything for his will to be done on earth, your reward is that happens and you get to be a part of that. You get to play a role in his kingdom coming with your faithful work. 
He is your reward. What did he tell uh, Abraham when he uh, cast his covenant with Abraham? He says, um, Yahweh came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your exceedingly great reward. What is your reward, Christ? That's your reward. What else do you need? What else are you looking for? What else do you hope that you might accomplish or have other than Christ and his kingdom? Jesus is resetting our priorities. The psalmist in Psalm 73 says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. It's passing away. But God is my strength of my heart and my reward forever. Who is your reward? Who is your inheritance? Who is your treasure? Who is your chief desire. That inheritance and that blessing is secure. There's the good news. Nothing corrupts it. Nothing ever fades it and no one can steal it. So much of what Jesus has to say here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is about perspective and focus. What is it that is gripping your heart and mind right now? What kingdom are you invested in building up? The one that crumbles, the one that decays, or the one that is eternal? He, he has that curious little phrase here that, that can be confusing if we try to read it by itself, but in the context, it makes more sense. In verse 22, he says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Let's meditate on that for a minute. What is Jesus saying? The eye, the Lord says, is the lamp of the body. The way that we process information, the way that we get information from the world around us is through the eye. If your eye is good, you get accurate information about the world around you. If your eye is bad, Jesus says, the whole body is full of darkness. You don't have another organ that receives and interprets light only your eyes. Now, Jesus says, just as the health of your eye affects your whole body, the object of your eyes, the object of your gaze, what you are looking at and seeking and desiring, that also affects your whole life. The thing you set your desires and ambitions on affects your whole body. So just as blindness leads to darkness, so does setting your eye on dishonorable things and worthless things. That plunges you into moral darkness. And so what Jesus says here is all has to do with vision. If your eyes work, you can see where you're going, you can properly evaluate the world around you, and you can point your body in the direction you need to go. You have right perspective. So too, if you have spiritual vision, if your spiritual perspective is, is corrected, then your life is going to be pointed, pointed to aims and goals which have eternal value. On the other hand, if you are spiritually blind, your perspective is clouded and you're going to pursue empty things. You're going to pursue corrupt things. So what Jesus is giving us in the Sermon on the Mount, he's giving us new eyes to see the world through kingdom lenses, to correct our vision, to not only see, but to desire kingdom priorities, to want what is valuable in the kingdom. And Jesus follows this up with a more blunt corrective in verse 24. 
He says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon means earthly wealth. It means earthly possessions, the stuff that's prone to rust and moth and theft. And Jesus calls that a master. Jesus says, not only is it a master, but it's a, it's a harsh master. It's never satisfied. Uh, that, that master of worldly stuff says, obey me, not only obey me, but obsess over me. Worry that you don't have enough of me. Never be satisfied with me, but want and want and want more. It, that master never provides rest, only more and more consternation and worry. Jesus said, if you pursue mammon as the pagans do, if you're preoccupied with having and obtaining and being envious and covetous over, over what other people have that you don't have, you cannot at the same time serve my father. You can't serve both. You can only love one. You can only be loyal to one. Either love the one who gives you eternal blessing and rest or the one who leads you to run around in circles for things that don't last. He closes this section with this passage that is so full of great comfort. Let me pick up from verse 25. Jesus says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What does Jesus say about worry? Did you catch that? Did you pick up on it? Did you hear it? What does he say? He says, do not do it. Not once but three times in verse 25, he says, do not worry. In verse 31, he says, do not worry. In verse 34, he says, do not worry. How many times does Jesus have to say something for us to hear it, for us to obey it? Paul says in Philippians 4, he says, be anxious for nothing. If Jesus tells you not to do something and you do it, what do you call that? It's a sin, right? Worry is a sin. And any sin is a symptom of a lack of unfaithfulness in some area. So when we worry, that should flip a light on. That should be a warning sound. That should be an alarm bell that prompts us to say, why are we doing this? Why are we sinning? What is it that I am thinking? What is it that I am doing? What is it that I am setting my heart on that's leading me to worry instead of trust? So far in this passage, we've 
gotten some clues as to what it might be. What am I replacing with trust? What is it? Am I worried because I'm emotionally invested in things that are passing away? Is my heart following my treasure? And my heart is anxious because my treasure is rusting. My treasure is being eaten away. Or am I worried because I'm serving mammon? Am I, am I serving a master that's in competition with my heavenly father and I'm enslaved to a false god? Worry should prompt us to ask, okay, okay, where's the idol? Every time I start worrying, where's the idol? What am I, what am I worshiping here? Is my idol certainty? Is certainty my idol? Do I expect that I should know everything that's going to happen ahead of time <clears throat> when God has never promised that? Has God ever promised you that you're going to know everything that's going to happen before it happens? Where does he promise you that? Why do you think that you have that right? Why do you think that you ought to know what is supposed to happen before it happens? Has God ever promised you comprehensive precognition that you are supposed to know what's going to happen and he holds you accountable for not knowing? No, no. So we turn certainty into an idol. We think we ought to be able to know what's coming. Is, is my idol control? Do I expect that I should have a kind of omnipotence that God has never given me, that I should be able to control everything and, and an omnicompetence, which means I not only, not only control it, but I control it well. I know everything that needs to be done. Is your idol control? Is your idol knowledge? Do I think that I should be able to know what everybody's thinking, what everybody's saying, what everybody's doing, what people are doing when I'm not watching, what people do behind closed doors, what do they get away with that I can't see, what conspiracies are being cooked up all around me? Do I think that? Do I think that I ought to have that knowledge when God hasn't given me omniscience or omnipresence? You see, when you start pulling the threads and you start unraveling that, that knotted up ball of worry, you eventually run into an irrational expectation that you should have knowledge or control over something that God has not given you jurisdiction over. There is something that God has not given you control over and you are pitching a fit because you don't have control over it. How much better just to do what Jesus says and just rest in the one who does have all these attributes. He is the one who knows everything before it happens. He is the one who is omnipotent. He is the one who is omnipresent and omniscient. He is everywhere and he knows everything. How much better to rest in the one who does have all these attributes and to boot, loves you. He loves you. He loves you more than the birds of the air, as Jesus says. He loves you more than the lilies of the field who he clothes in glory. He, feel, he, feel, he feeds the birds. He robes the fields in glory and adorns it with flowers. Do you think your heavenly father is going to allow you to do without? If you do live that life of anxiety preoccupied with these things, if you are covered in worry. What are you saying about who your heavenly father is? Worry is a sermon about the God you serve. Worry is a sermon about your king. And worry preaches to yourself and it preaches to everybody else around you. Worry preaches that God doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about me. And he can't help me even if he did care. And he doesn't love me. And he's not going to answer my prayers. 
you are preaching a sermon, point one, Roman numeral one, A, God doesn't love me. B, he's incompetent and impotent. And I am a citizen of a feckless, impoverished kingdom. That's the sermon your worry is preaching. You're preaching that to yourself every day that you allow yourself to wallow in worry. Worry is a highly effective evangelist. Worry easily makes converts. It is easy to get people to worry about things. Worry is contagious. Anxiety and distrust and fear and paranoia spread quickly. In Deuteronomy 20, when God is telling his people how to assemble an army, he tells Israel, leave the fearful at home. If anybody shows up to the muster when you're, when you're calling the men together for battle and there are some fearful guys, you know what you need to do? You need to tell them to go home. Go home. We don't need you here. This is what Deuteronomy 20 says. What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. Why? Because we don't need to get into battle and then the arrows start flying and the swords start clashing and all of a sudden you have somebody begin to panic and that person's panic spreads like wildfire and everybody begins to fear because worry recruits others to join in the worry and it spreads. Worry is never satisfied. There's always something to worry about. What are you worried about? You want to come up with something irrational to worry about? We can get there pretty quickly. Are you okay with how this roof is put together? Do you know the engineer? Might it fall on us today? I don't know. It could. It may. may. Now that's in your head. Now you're worried. Now you're looking, seeing. Could it fall? There is no limit to things to fear. No limit. Which is why there's always some global crisis. There's always some meltdown. There's always some grand cataclysmic event just around the corner. You let your mind run wild with a fertile imagination and you can come up with an endless list of irrational fears. Worry stultifies. Worry obstructs. Worry impedes the work of the kingdom. Worry says, hold back. You can't be certain. You don't have all the questions answered. There are things you can't control. There are things you can't know. There are all these question marks, things we don't have a handle on. Better not step out. Better stay stuck. Better stay calcified. Better refuse to launch out in faith and trust. Worry obstructs and stultifies faithful living. Jesus speaks with a calm, clear voice into the midst of all of this. And what does he say? He says, do not worry. He says, do not worry worry. He says, do not worry. He said it three times. So I'm going to say it three times. <laughs> do not worry. That's what Jesus says. The world of unbelief, the world in darkness worries because it doesn't acknowledge the rule of a good and kind and sovereign heavenly father, the father who knows what you need. They worry because they don't serve him. They don't know him. But you, beloved children, you seek after the kingdom of God you seek his righteousness, trusting that everything is going to be added to you. You are going to be provided for. Psalm 37 says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. I can say with all confidence that the Lord provides for his children. Not only, always in the way that I expect, not always with the timing that I expect, 
but he always, always, always provides for his children. I can echo the words of the psalmist. I have never seen God's people forsaken. I have never, I have never seen God's people forsaken. I have trusted the Lord Jesus and I have walked with him my entire life and he has always provided. He has never forsaken me. Jesus says, worry accomplishes nothing. Not even a little bit. It doesn't even do a little bit of good. It doesn't do, it doesn't just do, just, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't help at all. It doesn't add anything to your stature, Jesus says. Worry doesn't put food on your table. Worrying does not improve your future. It just ruins your day. Worse than that, it drains your energy. It distracts you from your responsibilities. It causes you to miss out on the joys and the pleasures of the providences that you have today, the things you must give thanks for today. You, you miss all that. If you are covered and shrouded in anxiety, it is a possible indication that you are serving mammon. It's a real possibility that your heart is weighed down with things that are not, that are not lasting, things that are passing away. It's a real indication that there must be some truth that you're not embracing and there is some lie that you're accepting instead. You're accepting a lie. I must have certainty. I must have control. I must have all of this foreknowledge and, and, and universal competence of everything. There's something there that you're accepting, some lie that you're adopting. So what do you do? What do you do? You repent. Confess to God, Father, I have been doubting your providence. I have been doubting your promises. The very promises that your son secured for me in his death and resurrection, those promises, those are the ones that I'm doubting. Ask him for, uh, to forgive you and rest in his fatherly care. Fill your mind with truths about your heavenly father, truths that knock down the lies and destroy the idols. Pour yourself into today's business, today's work, the duties he's given you to do today. Stop wasting your life and your resources with worry. So if we step back and see everything that the Lord Jesus says in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, this middle, middle chapter as it's divided in our Bibles, everything Jesus has been talking about has been getting your mind off of the opinions of others, losing the desire to impress others with your piety, and your virtues. Refrain from wrapping up your mind and your life and your heart. Uh, refuse to wrap it up in trifles. Stop obsessing over things that have no value and shift your perspective to this thing. I am a child of my heavenly father. That's my identity. That's who I am. And because of that, because I'm a child of my heavenly father, I don't have to predict everything. I don't have to control everything. I don't have to know everything. He has made me a limited creature on purpose. That's how he designed me. He is God. I am not. He has created this, uh, me this way, and he has made me contingent upon his blessings. I exist to live off of his providence on purpose. That's the way he designed it, because he delights to feed me. He delights to clothe me. He delights to guide me through this world. Just as he does the birds and the flowers of the field, I think he takes great delight, great delight in the animals and the, and the plants and the things he's created. So he takes delight in me. So child of God, Jesus said it three times. I've said it half a dozen, one more. Do not worry. Be 
at peace. Rest in your Savior and in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would grant us that peace that passes all understanding as we find our rest and we find our hope in you alone. Father, please cover us in your tender mercies and strengthen us in these truths. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.